Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Qu'ils sont beaux les pieds. Hello, my lover. Hi, Johnny. All right, so today we're going to go back to our discussion on the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And so far, if you've listened in the past, we discussed them in canonical order. And we started with The Magician's Nephew. Right. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and then The Horse and His Boy. Right. That was the last one that we did. That we did, yes. Mm-hmm. And this week we're going to make a bit of a departure right. from the canonical order and jump ahead right. to the silver chair. Right. Now, we stopped previously after The Horse and His Boy because we wanted to discuss two other topics that had gotten our interest. Right. And if you haven't listened to those, you might want to go back. Number 11, I think it is, where we... um. We sort of make like cliff notes to one of the Christian atheist series called like The Evident Evidence, Evidence and, and Faith. Faith. That was number 11. And then number 12, we revisited an earlier Christian atheist from, what was it, last March? Yeah, March, March of 2020. March 2020. That was right. two years ago. On the closing of our churches. Right. In which we discussed the unfolding COVID crisis. Right. And so we revisit it. Update it. Update our what we were thinking. Now. Right, and the many things that we've learned since then. Mm-hmm. That's number 12. So if you want to listen to those. Okay, so now we're going to return to the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, the next books, canonically, are Prince Caspian right. and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I right. think you already mentioned that. Both of which we read, but yeah. we decided to skip over them and go right to the Silver Chair. Yeah, because chair. we were very excited about some stuff that we found in the Silver Chair. Right. Now, The Silver Chair is the sixth book, can- canonically, of course, in the series. Okay, so while reading it, we were struck at two specific chapters. Right, what- chapters 11 and 12. And like The Horse and His Boy, we found that most of the story is story, and mm-hmm. the critical moments come yeah. at one spot in the text. Right. And so we'll let you read the rest of the story. And we'll take you right to the point where everything climaxes. Right. Um, the denouement, the unraveling right. of the whole story that Lewis has woven. Um, and capturing what the Christian atheist has been trying to say right. for three years now. That's what was so exciting for us. Right. This is exciting because it does such a good job of encapsulating so much of mm-hmm. what we've been trying to express right. over the last especially, two and a half years at the Christian Atheist. Especially your evident Evidence and Faith series. Right. Okay. And we actually alluded, uh, I'm not sure which episode it is anymore, mm-hmm. but we actually talked about this exact same spot mm-hmm. in one of the episodes previous yeah, to this. that's right. Okay, I guess we should just begin by giving a lead up to these chapters, chapters 11 and 12. If you haven't read... The Silver Chair, you need to because it's one of the best ones of the series. Do you think it's one of the best ones? I like this one. Yeah, I love The Silver Chair. I think when I first read it, it wasn't one of my favorite. Yeah. But then when I concentrated on this section, it sort of opened up everything. The rest of the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it made it, of course, one of my favorites. Yes. Okay. So we don't want to spoil the whole story in case you haven't read it. So we'll summarize up to chapters 11 and 12. Then you're going to read part of 11 and 12. Right. And then we won't finish what happens after that. I mean, that pretty much spoils the whole thing anyway. (laughs) Okay, so this book opens with two characters from our world. Eustace, who's also called Scrub, 
That's his last name. Right. And he's the cousin. Of the Pevensies. Right. Lucy, Susan, Edmund, and Peter. And we actually are introduced to him in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Right. Which is before this So book. Eustace is a returning character. Right. And then a new character named Jill, also known as Pole. Pole is her last name. Right. And just as a quick side note, the first chapter of this book is kind of humorous because it's Lewis's take on education. Education in <laughs> England in his own day. Yes. Right, right. And he's very disgusted with right, it. Right, exactly. Yes. Okay, so anyway, um the two children enter Aslan's country and Jill meets Aslan herself and he gives her four signs that the children must follow in order to find the lost prince of Narnia. Right. Now, John, you're going to read the four signs? We're going to read the four okay. signs because it's worth being clear about this yeah. as we move forward through the story and in particular at the very end. Okay, so Aslan speaks to Jill. These are the signs by which I will guide you in your quest. First, as soon as the boy Eustace sets foot in Narnia, he will meet an old and dear friend. He must greet that friend at once. If he does, you will both have good help. And as they say, they muff this sign. Mm -hmm. Because Eustace sees Caspian, although he doesn't know he's Caspian, right. and doesn't greet him, right. even though Jill tries to persuade him to do so. But he says, oh, I, don't know who any I don't know anybody here. Right. So they muff this sign. They call muff it. They screw it up. Right. Continuing. Second. You must journey out of Narnia to the north till you come to the ruined city of the ancient giants. Third, you shall find a writing on a stone in that ruined city, and you must do what the writing tells you. Fourth, you will know the lost prince, if you find him, by this, that he will be the first person you have met in your travels who will ask you to do something in my name in the name of Aslan. So those are the four signs. And what does Aslan tell her she has to do with those four signs? Stand still, Aslan says. In a moment, I will blow. That is, he's going to blow her from Aslan's country all the way to Narnia. But first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning. And when you lie down at night, and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain the air is clear, and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. And of course, that reminds us of the Bible verse. Right. So immediately we thought of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them 
on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, and when you walk along the road, and when you lie down, and when you get up. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. Right. And clearly, this is what Lewis has in mind. Right. There's no doubt. Okay, so Aslan sends them on their quest, and at the beginning, they find out the lost prince is Prince Rillian, who is the son of King Caspian. And Caspian is, is a character that is introduced in the book Prince Caspian, and then later he becomes King of Narnia. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he's the King of Narnia. So he's the King of Narnia now, and he is very old, and he's been waiting for his son to return, Prince Rillian. The children hear the story about how Prince Rillian disappears. One important takeaway was that Prince Rillian's mother had been killed by a green serpent's bite before he had gone missing. And also, one other thing that they found out is that Prince Rillian had been communicating after his mother's death with a, a mysterious green lady that nobody knew who she was. Okay, so the children set out on their quest to find the prince, and the first thing is they get linked up with a guide, and that guide is a new character from a new character group. Yes, um, Puddleglum yeah. is his name, and, and he is a Marsh Wiggle. Yeah, he's of the group called the Marsh Wiggles. Right, <laughs> and Marsh Wiggles are an interesting group of creatures in yeah. Narnia, and we come to love. He becomes one of the most beloved of characters, along with Reepicheep from the Dawn Treader and mm -hmm. Prince Caspian. Right. So the Marsh Wiggle Puddleglum seems always to be down in the mouth about everything, mm -hmm. although for Marsh Wiggles, he's actually thought to be too giddy. Right, too, too optimistic. <laughs> too, yeah, too optimistic. <laughs> so the trio, which would be Puddleglum, Jill, Eustace, they travel north over the land. Right, looking um, for this ancient city of giants. And that was what they were told to do in Correct, the signs. In yeah. the signs. And they experience some exciting situations, just like any journey. And then they end up underground for the rest of their journey. Right. And that takes them to a sort of underground city that's populated by grotesque, stone-like. Are they earthmen or underworldmen? Earthmen. Okay. Yeah, they're Describe kind of them. ugly looking creatures. Right. They have a lot of different varieties. Right. And then on to an underground palace where they meet a mysterious young man. Right. And it and, might be worth saying at this point yeah. that of the signs, as yeah. they've gone through them, they realize that they've pretty much blown them all. All three. All the three of them three. to this point. Right. Although the last sign that said under me in the city that they missed, they were driven underground because they were fleeing Forced. from having screwed up the signs. Right, exactly. Um, and so they, in a sense, are following the third sign, even right. though they screwed up. Right, right. So they're on the journey, as Puddleglum points out. Mm -hmm. At least we're underground, as the signs told us we're supposed to be. Okay, so as I said, they meet a mysterious young man in this underground palace. He's called a knight. Right, they call right. him the knight. Okay, so this is where we're going to take up reading. You're going to read... Yeah, real quickly, the knight's description of his own condition here in the underground world of the queen of the underworld. Right. First of all, they are invited by the knight to eat dinner with, with right. him. So this right. is the so conversation all, of the knight Yeah, with they're him. all having dinner, and this is the dinner conversation. Go ahead and read the backstory. You must understand, friends, that I know nothing of who I was and whence I came into this dark world. I remember no time when I was not dwelling as now at the court of this all-but-heavenly queen. But my thought is that she saved me from some evil enchantment, and brought me hither of her exceeding bounty. 
and this seems to me the likelier, because even now I am bound by a spell, from which my lady alone can free me. Every night there comes an hour when my mind is most horribly changed, and, after my mind, my body. For first I become furious and wild, and would rush upon my dearest friends to kill them, if I were not bound. And soon after that I turn into the likeness of a great serpent, hungry, fierce, and deadly. So they tell me. And they certainly speak truth, for my lady says the same. I myself know nothing of it. For when my hour is past, I awake forgetful of all that vile fit, and in my proper shape, and sound mind, saving that I am somewhat wearied. Now the Queen's Majesty knows by her art that I shall be freed from this enchantment when once she has made me a king of a land in the overworld, and set its crown upon my head. And then one last bit really says something important to Jill. I don't think it's funny at all, said Jill. I think you'll be a wicked tyrant. What? said the knight, still laughing and patting her head in a quite infuriating fashion. Is our little maid a deep politician? But never fear, sweetheart. In ruling that land, I shall do all by the counsel of my lady, who will then be my queen, too. Her word shall be my law, even as my word will be law to the people we have conquered. Where I come from, said Jill, who was disliking him more every minute, they don't think much of men who are bossed about by their wives. <laughs> <laughs> I find that amusing yeah, yeah. and interesting, too, because it is an assault on the distinction between men and women Male and, female. and the proper roles for each. Right. That's right. Shalt think otherwise when thou hast a man of thine own, I warrant you, said the knight, apparently thinking this very funny. But with my lady, it is another matter. I am well content to live by her word who has already saved me from a thousand dangers. No mother has taken pains more tenderly for her child than the queen's grace has for me. Why, look you, amid all her cares and business, she rideth out with me in the overworld many a time, and oft to accustom my eyes to the sunlight. And then I must go fully armed, and with visor down, so that no man may see my face, and I must speak to no one, for she has found out by art magical that this would hinder my deliverance from this grievous enchantment I lie under. Is not that a lady worthy of a man's whole worship? Sounds a very nice lady indeed, said Puddleglum, in a voice which meant exactly the opposite. So important here mm -hmm. is the idea that this queen is acting the mother mm -hmm. to the knight. Right. She exactly. is treating him as her child. And this is often the manifestation of the tyrannical mother right? in Freud and in psychology. Mm -hmm. The mother who has designs on her children, who live through their children and control them. Right. This is definitely a picture of our contemporary world. Right. Um, and that world was coming to be in Lewis's day. I think he saw it pretty clearly that we were on the path towards it. Exactly. But what was merely coming to be in Lewis's day has been largely realized in our own. Right. And the vision I think he saw was exactly what we're seeing here. The state, the government, has become largely feminized, right. maternalized, 
and turned on the paternalistic view of mm -hmm. things. And the biblical, the, the Christian view is that both parents are necessary. Right. Both visions are required. Yeah, balance. And, well, I'm sorry? Balance. Balance, yeah. Right. Um, and, and instead, what we've tried to do is to kill the paternalistic view and raise the maternal to to the sole proprietor right. of everything. Right. So I, I like to say that our society has been feminized or maternalized mm -hmm. and our population has been infantilized. Right. And a lot of my own thinking on this has been informed by what you always say, mm -hmm. <laughs> having raised seven kids, yeah. about how those kids behaved and how the Democrats today are mirroring right. that. And what age? It was like six, seven, eight, sometimes toddler. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you say they're doing exactly the same thing that those kids did constantly. Right. right. Changing rules. <laughs> <laughs> Making up the rules as they go. go along. Changing them into their own advantage as things go along. When, yeah. When asked to be <laughs> responsible, you're mean. Yeah. Or And always shifting <laughs> the responsibility to other people. Right. Yeah. Right. So this is the new religious orthodoxy, the new totalitarian structure that we are being forced to live under. Right. Exactly. And it seems as though Jill, in particular, is quick to see through it. Right. And mm -hmm. Puddle Glum as well. Right. I was going to just mention that Puddle Glum, Jill, the reader even, notices that this green lady just doesn't seem right. Right. You know? Something's wrong with this. In fact, remember Puddle Glum says that uh, she has all the earmarks of a witch. That's right. Mm -hmm. So the knight starts to feel that nightly enchantment coming on that, that is beginning, and he tells the trio to leave him so that when the underworld men come in to bind him, that they don't see them, the three of them. He tells them to wait out of the way. And then um, while they are waiting and while the knight is being bound up into the silver chair, they make a covenant with each other that they will not release him. Because no matter what. Basically, they have no reason not to believe his story. Right. Yeah. And so they all agree with one another and they swear mm -hmm. uh, a, an oath of fealty to each other that right. they will not, under any circumstances, release this knight from his enchanted bounds. Exactly. Okay, so you're going to take up reading when the trio goes back into the room and there is the knight sitting bound to the chair. Right. They went back down the corridor and gently pushed the door open. It's all right, said Scrub, meaning that there were no earthmen about. Then they all came back into the room where they had supped. The main door was now shut, concealing the curtain between which they had first entered. The knight was seated in a curious silver chair to which he was bound by his ankles, his knees, his elbows, his wrists, and his waist. There was sweat on his forehead, and his face was filled with anguish. And this silver chair mm -hmm. is A the curiosity. namesake of the book. Yeah. And yet, Lewis says almost nothing exactly. else about it, yeah. other than this very brief description, and then when the chair is ultimately chopped up. Mm -hmm. There's another little brief section there, but there's very little detail right. given about this chair. Right. And there's something mysterious right. there that yeah. we're intrigued by, but we can't quite put our finger on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Come in, friends, he said, glancing quickly up. The fit is not yet upon me. Make no noise, for I told that prying chamberlain that you were in bed. Now I can feel it coming. Quick, listen while I am master of myself. 
when the fit comes upon me, it may well be that I shall beg and implore you with entreaties and threatenings to loosen my bonds. They say I do. I shall call upon you by all that is most dear and most dreadful. But do not listen to me. Harden your hearts and stop your ears, for while I am bound, you are safe. But if once I were up and out of this chair, then first would come my fury, and after that, he shuddered, the change into a loathsome serpent. <laughs> There's no fear of our loosing you, said Puddleglum. We've no wish to meet wild men, or serpents either. All the same, added Puddleglum in a whisper, don't let's be too sure. Let's be on our guard. We've muffed everything else. And here he's referring to the other signs. Right. We've muffed everything else, you know. He'll be cunning, I shouldn't wonder, once he gets started. Can we trust one another? Do we all promise that whatever he says, we don't touch those cords? Whatever he says, mind you. Rather, said Scrub. There's nothing in the world he can say or do that'll make me change my mind, said Jill. Hush. Something's happening, said Puddleglum. The knight was moaning. His face was as pale as putty, and he writhed in his bonds. And whether because she was sorry for him or for some other reason, Jill thought he looked a nicer sort of man than he had looked before. Ah, he groaned. Enchantments, enchantments, the heavy, tangled, cold, clammy web of evil magic, buried alive, dragged down under the earth, down into the sooty blackness. How many years is it? Have I lived ten years or a thousand years in the pit? Maggot men all around me. Oh, have mercy. Let me out. Let me go back. Let me feel the wind and see the sky. There used to be a little pool. When you looked down in it, you could see all the trees growing upside down in the water, all green and below them deep, very deep, the blue sky. He had been speaking in a low voice. Now he looked up, fixed his eyes upon them, and said loud and clear, Quick, I am sane now. Every night I am sane. If only I could get out of this enchanted chair, it would last. I should be a man again. But every night they bind me. And so, every night my chance is gone. But you are not my enemies. I am not your prisoner. Quick, cut these cords. So at this point, he's claiming that he's in his right mind. Right. And it, so we have two sides yeah. here, right? And one of the things we've talked about over and over again mm -hmm. in the Christian atheists, especially in the very beginning, were the two sides of the looking glass. Right. And knowing which is the right side is impossible, right. actually. Knowing. Exactly. It takes faith. You have to choose one side or the other. Right. They and both... that's the position that the children and Puddleglum are now placed in. Right. Um, which they, side is the which side is the truly sane night? Right. Exactly. And it's interesting that at nighttime is when he finds himself in his right mind, when he's all alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's almost like That's an important point. Yeah, yeah. When you're lying all alone in your bed, that's when you you start to think about we talked mm -hmm. about this in relation to the evident evidence and faith right. by saying that we can tell ourselves all kinds of rational stories and convince ourselves that they're true during the day. During the day. Right. But there come times, 
And I wish I had the quote actually from Lewis about this. Mm -hmm. I forget which of his essays it's in, but he says something to this effect. If you are an atheist, no matter how committed you are, there will come times Mm -hmm. when something breaks through upon you and makes you doubt and say, what if I'm wrong about Mm -hmm. this? And I remember for me as an atheist, one thing in particular, I'll tell this story and I'll let it go. I remember working in a house and someone told me it was haunted and I sort of blew that off being the rational scientific character that I was. There's no such thing as hauntings. The supernatural is is ridiculous. And I convinced myself of that. I really believed it. And even after I had this experience, I believed it. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, when I was down in the basement working in that house, it got cold and I had a very strong sense of someone looking over my shoulder. And so no matter how rational you are, there are those moments of the evidence that overtake you Mm -hmm. that cause you to doubt the certainty that you've developed in your rational mind. Right. And you're saying I'm crazy. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I don't think you're crazy at all. Um, What did Shakespeare's Hamlet say? To Horatio. Ah, yes. Here we go. Yeah, there is, I forget what that is. Ah, yes. In, in the play Hamlet, Hamlet says to his friend Horatio, there are more things on heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. <laughs> and sometimes we experience things that cannot be explained. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that they're real, but it also doesn't mean that they're not real, Mm -hmm. just because we can explain them away rationally. Exactly. Human beings have a vast variety of experiences that rationality cannot fully account for. Right, right. And that's why the evidence is so important. Mm -hmm. All right, so go ahead and continue. So far, this night, when he's supposedly out of his mind, He's absolutely certain, rational, compelling. Stand fast, steady, said Puddleglum to the two children. I beseech you to hear me, said the knight, forcing himself to speak calmly. Have they told you that if I am released from this chair, I shall kill you and become a serpent? I see by your faces that they have. It is a lie. It is at this hour that I am in my right mind. It is all the rest of the day that I am enchanted. You are not earthmen, nor witches. Why should you be on their side? Of your courtesy, cut my bonds. So, the knight is here making a rational argument that they should side with him. Mm -hmm. But the rationality is just as strong on the other side. I was going to say it's just as strong on the other side. Right, so you're on two sides of Mm -hmm. the looking glass here. Exactly. Which side is reality and which side is reflection? Right. Steady, 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 said the three travelers to one another. Oh, you have hearts of stone, said the knight. And that, I think, too, is important because he's appealing here to something beyond Mm -hmm. mere rationality. He's asking them to look into their hearts to see what it is their humanity, beyond their mere rationality, Mm -hmm. is saying to them. And you'll notice that Jill said earlier above, there was something seems, different about yeah, him seems a lot nicer. Something nicer, right. something more real in his right. face. Exactly. Okay. Believe me, 
You look upon a wretch who has suffered almost more than any mortal heart can bear. What wrong have I ever done you, that you should side with my enemies to keep me in such miseries? And the minutes are slipping past. Now you can save me. When this hour has passed, I shall be witless again, the toy and lapdog, nay, more likely the pawn and tool of the most devilish sorceress that ever planned the woe of men. And this night, of all nights, when she is away, you take from me a chance that may never come again. And that's powerful. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um... It might say something to the children, too. Right. I was just going to say that it's evident. It's the evident because everything leading up to here was enough for them to conclude that she is a witch. That she is a witch. Right. And even to look at the story that's unfolding before their eyes, Mm -hmm. this is the one night out of almost any night that the witch isn't there. With him. Right. So, how did that come about? And when I came back to Christ and I looked back over my life, that was one of the things that made me realize how foolish I'd been Mm -hmm. because I saw how God had orchestrated all of those moments in those 25 years of atheism to lead me back to that point where I recognized what a fool I'd been and turned back. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. chose which side to be on. Exactly. But one more thing about what I was saying about. They had enough reason. Puddleglum had already remarked that she had all the earmarks of a witch. Yes. And if you read the story previously, they met this woman and him in the overworld, and she led them to a castle of giants who, were, right. going to, who were going to eat them. Right. She and sent she them. knew. She knew. In fact, Jill and I think it's Jill or Eustace say that when they talk to him. They said, is she's the one that led led us to to the castle? She's the one that sent us to the, quote, gentle giants who were going to eat them (laughs) for the festival. Right. So they had all they had all the evidence in order to see that, you know, she she something wasn't right with her. Right. All they need to do was follow the logic. Exactly. And see how it added up to acknowledge that what they'd experienced was real and enough evidence. To conclude that they were on the right path here Mm -hmm. and that this woman, this queen of the underworld, is in fact an evil sorceress, just as he has just told them. And and that this man's story now makes more sense than that of the knight telling them before he changed. Right. Okay, go ahead. This is dreadful. I do wish we'd stay away till it was over, said Jill. Steady, said Puddleglum. The prisoner's voice was now rising into a shriek. Let me go, I say. Give me my sword, my sword. Once I am free, I shall take such revenge on earthmen that Underland will talk of it for a thousand years. Now the frenzy is beginning, said Scrub. I hope those knots are all right. The prisoner was now so straining at his bonds that they cut into his wrists and ankles. Beware, he said. Beware, one night I did break them. But the witch was there that time. You will not have her to help you tonight. Free me now, and I am your friend. I'm your mortal enemy else. Cunning, isn't he? said Puddleglum. Once and for all, said the prisoner, I adjure you to set me free by all fears and all loves. 
by the bright skies of Overland, by the great lion, by Aslan himself, I charge you. Oh, cried the three travelers, as though they had been hurt. Because this is the fourth sign. It's the sign, said Puddleglum. It was the words of the sign, said Scrub more cautiously. Oh, what are we to do, said Jill. And this is it. Mm -hmm. This is when... This is the moment of decision. When reasoning has to stop and faith has to... You have to take, take a over. leap of faith. Right. Mm -hmm. And they have enough reason to see the compelling nature of the story that is being told them mm -hmm. now by the night here in mm -hmm. this state of mind. Right. And to find it more compelling than the other one. Or, mm -hmm. failing that, at least as compelling. Right. Right. And then they also have the sign. Right, exactly. So this is the moment of decision. Mm -hmm. And terrible results may follow from either one. Right. And then what follows from this is very important. Because Scrub says it's the words of the sign. Right. There's the rationalization. Exactly. And that's what we constantly do as atheists. It's what I did as mm -hmm. an atheist. Mm -hmm. I would have evidence that would point me towards God. But I could explain it all the way. Oh, yeah. oh, that's a psychological thing. Oh, mm -hmm. that's just the mind taking off on a fancy. Mm -hmm. Everything can be explained away. Mm -hmm. It was a dreadful question. All questions of faith are, are dreadful, dreadful questions mm -hmm. because exactly. they require us to choose. What had been the use of promising one another that they would not on any account set the night free if they were now to do so the first time he happened to call upon a name they really cared about? On the other hand, the other side of the looking glass, what had been the use of learning the signs if they weren't going to obey them? Yet, and here's that questioning yep. that we go through, yet could Aslan really meant them to unbind anyone? Even a lunatic who asked it in his name? Could it be a mere accident? Or how if the Queen of the Underworld knew all about the signs and had made the knight learn this name simply in order to entrap them? But then, supposing this was the real sign? They had muffed three already. They daren't muff the fourth. It is a terrible moment. Mm -hmm. You must decide which side you will stand on. Mm -hmm. Oh, if only we knew, said Jill. But in faith, we never really know. No. We can only believe. Despite what Puddleglum says next, I think we do know, said Puddleglum. Mm -hmm. And that is the knowledge that only comes by first asserting faith. And once you believe it, you can say you know it, perhaps, exactly. because knowledge follows belief, right. not the other not, way around. Yeah. Do you mean you think everything will come right if we do untie him, said Scrub? <laughs> and this is the important point, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about that, said Puddleglum. You see, Aslan didn't tell Paul what would happen. He only told her what to do. Right. That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, I shouldn't wonder. But that doesn't let us off following the sign. You still have to choose. Right. And then you have to bear the consequences of that choice. That decision. 
They all stood looking at one another with bright eyes. It was a sickening moment. All right, said Jill suddenly. Let's get it over. Goodbye, everyone. They all shook hands. The knight was screaming by now. There was foam on his cheeks. Come on, scrub, said Puddleglum. He and scrub drew their swords and went over to the captive. In the name of Aslan, they said, and began methodically cutting the cords. The instant the prisoner was free, he crossed the room in a single bound, seized his own sword, and drew it. You first, he cried, and fell upon the silver chair. That must have been a good sword. The silver gave way before its edge like string, and in a moment a few twisted fragments, shining on the floor, were all that was left. But as the chair broke, there came from it a bright flash, a sound like small thunder, and, for one moment, a loathsome smell. Lie there, vile engine of sorcery, he said, lest your mistress should ever use you for another victim. What, he cried, turning to Puddleglum, do I see before me a marsh wiggle? A real, live, honest, Narnian marsh wiggle? Oh, so you have heard of Narnia after all, said Jill. Had I forgotten it when I was under the spell? asked the knight. Well, that and all other bedevilments are now over. You may well believe that I know Narnia, for I am Rillian, Prince of Narnia, and Caspian the Great King is my father. I am a Christian, with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.